Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 208, recorded for April 12th, 2023, Azure Lost in AI Space. Good evening, Ryan and Matthew. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, you know, you had some fan mail on the Slack this week, Matt. I saw it. I put a few uh, hearts in there. Sounds yeah. like people actually like what I have to say, which is a strange idea. Yeah. Apparently they like your your Azure influence because uh, we've been faking it for you know three and a half years now trying to be Azure experts. So, you know, we've done the best we can, but true true practitioner on the, on the pod helps a lot. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm just faking along with you guys, so it's fine. Sure, sure. I mean, that's you fake it till you make it. Peter Principle is its finest. <laughs> uh, well, we have uh, we have news once again this week to cover. Uh, Jonathan is out. Peter is out uh, this week, and uh, let's get to it. General news: uh, There's an article here from the information about what OpenAI is doing that Google isn't. And uh, I just chuckled this because I was thinking, well, making a workable product for one is my first <laughs> takeaway. But uh, Martin <laughs> Pierce, who's much smarter for me from the information, said. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of really good areas or there's examples. So at Google, apparently, they kept their AI lab separate. So the researchers were separated from the engineers. <laughs> and so at OpenAI, of course, they showed them together and said, create a chatbot, and that worked out a lot better. And then the uh, interesting takeaway from this article in general was, uh, you know, is that an example of Google losing their edge? And like, you know, Google... Uh, I was having this conversation earlier today about Google Cloud in general and just... I I appreciate their Kubernetes play. I appreciate BigQuery, but then there's everything else. And it's just sort of like, what are you guys doing? Like, what's your strategy? Where are you going with like this thing? Like, you're number three to the market. Like, what's your play? Like, how do you try to get market share? And I just, are you just happy being a number three player? Like, what, what's the deal there? What do you guys think? Well, I, you know, I think that GCP is not the most, you know, it's not at the forefront of Google strategy by any means, right? And so it's like, I think articles where they're touting the downfall of Google and Sedge are really about just how Google has excelled in so many different areas, you know, um, but spe- specifically advertising and indexing and search results. So like, it's, that's, it's a little, you know, like poking at the, you know, at the person on top, you can always punch up, right? But, uh, you know, I don't, for AI, it's, you know, it's, it's, they clearly built an AI product to, as part of their search strategy, which makes a lot of sense if you're Google. And it's really, I find it just kind of fascinating that open AI, because they were first in the market, gets to dictate now what AI is. And I'm flabbergasted, honestly, like it's, it's kind of great, but that's, you know, it makes much more sense, you know, if you consider like sci-fi references and all these, you know, AI, you know, AI in our, in our modern uh, lexicon. It's just, you know, it's always been an interaction. It's always been dialogue. It's always been, you know, data, the robot or, um, you know, Skynet that has, you know, androids that kill you. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I feel like that, you know, they're just trying to play catch up everywhere. You know, they've had so much, you know, and I feel like they hid a lot of it from the public and OpenAI came out and they're like, hey, look, look at this cool thing that we did. And it's really nothing that fascinating. You know, it's nothing that they completely revolutionized. They just put it in a very easy way for the average consumer to kind of understand. 
and where Google's kind of just kept in. Now they're like, wait, 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 we have it too, guys. Like, look, we've been doing it for a while and it's just, they missed the like, um, like surprise, like look at this cool thing that we have that, you know, nobody else had. And now it's like, okay, we have it too. You're like, great. But, you know, they, I feel like they're just so used to being a little bit more closed and hidden and keeping stuff, you know, to themselves. And a lot of the other people are now like, look, look at this thing we have and just kind of sh- shoving it out there and see what happens because people are very quick to forget things that are less interesting, you know, so. Yeah. I wonder if this is just what happens when you start, you stop, you lose sight of, the functionality, like building a service for the service aspect, and you start only worrying about monetizing and impressing your leadership. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the interesting parallels that I see here to like Xerox Park, right? You know, they they built <laughs> what we can basically consider modern Windows computing with a mouse and a and a monitor. And you know, Steve Jobs went toward you know Xerox Park's lab and saw what they were doing, and that became the Macintosh. So, you know, like. All the research and everything that Chat AI, you know, OpenAI has done is all based on Google's research that they publicly published. <laughs> it's all, you know, the models that we use for AI training are all based on Google stuff. And so, is this, you know, is this just the latest example of someone missing the mark and first mover advantage uh, is the winner of the day on this? I don't know. It'll, it, you know, I'm curious to see as Bard starts getting kind of put into Google apps and into you know, some of those things and actually embedded into search engine. Maybe that changes and the shift, the paradigm shifts again, but. Right now, it does feel like OpenAI is light years ahead. Mm-hmm. It also just feels like they're kind of just shoving it into everything. You know, okay, cool. We have this thing. Like we've told everyone, we have this thing, and now we're going to just say quickly put it into everything. So I'm more afraid that as they put it into every one of their tools, it's not going to be implemented well, and it's just going to start to cause more problems within the tools. Versus if they would have thought about this early on, they could have slowly rolled it out and been like. Hey, look! Here's this thing in here's Bart in this and this and this and slowly made it roll out and become more intelligent as it went. Versus when you put it into everything all at once, the amount of feedback they're going to get is, I'm more afraid it's going to screw up their models. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because you know OpenAI ChatGPT hit the market aggressively. Why that was in December timeframe. And then, you know, within like a month and a half, they already had, you know, the next version of ChatGPT out there. Now they're on ChatGPT4, which is passing medical exams. Um, you know, they've, they've done a lot very, very quickly with this technology. And, and it's like Bard came out, you know, three or four weeks ago in, in preview. And now we've yet to see anything happen with it. There's been no like, hey, we've updated the model or we've, we've taken feedback and we've done anything. It's like we got it out there to say, yes, we, we meet the market need. But now how do we move it forward? Well, how long was Gmail in beta for? Maybe that's how long it will take for them to take this out of beta. It was many, many years of beta. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, if you're an AI developer and you're looking to build out your own custom models and really start using some of these great technologies that are out there, I saw Databricks this week released an open source uh, AI tool set as well called Poly. Uh, you might be looking for hardware to uh, do that uh, and to do that training and to do those things. But Unfortunately, the information also talks about startups are struggling to find AR hardware on all the cloud providers, including AWS, Microsoft, Google, and Oracle. Uh, and this is limiting their availability to customers. And according to the interview with cloud companies, uh, you know, the biggest block, of course, is GPUs. But even when they can get on a wait list and then wait for the servers, they'll only get one or maybe two of them, uh, which is not great uh, overall. But interesting, these shortages we're seeing. Uh, I'll tie it back really to NVIDIA and GPU processors, though. 
Yeah, that's it's it's sort of fascinating, right? Like it's a run on any you know limited resource, and GPUs like just are you know they were definitely they were the first to really hit supply chain issue things that I heard about anyway. I might be a little colored by my interests, but you know, like it's always been sort of a scarce resource, and it's I've always sort of found it funny. Because when it was when I first started hurting, hurting GPUs being used for machine learning and those types of workloads, was, there weren't enough of them then because it was made for graphical, pro, you know, graphic processing, and and it wasn't really embedded in the the type of hardware you need to run in a data center. So it's uh, it's interesting to see that GPUs are continue to be you know a finite resource. I thought yeah. I um, heard at least from you know. Some of my coworkers and whatnot that felt like GPUs were starting to come a little bit more back into stock. The prices weren't as insane, um, and that th- you know some of the stuff was coming more back in line. But maybe it's not as targeted towards you know the modeling and you know all the AI stuff that's needed. Yeah, I mean that's the more desktop GPU, which was really big in Bitcoin mining. Uh, yeah. And since you know things like Ethereum have become less. Uh, Proof uh, based, you know, there's less, less demand for that. Plus, the Bitcoin market fell out pretty badly. So, yeah, you know, the power to generate to power, you know, to get a Bitcoin versus actually what you're getting out of it is no longer viable. So, yeah, there's been a lot of GPU returns. There's been a lot of GPU availability now in the desktop market, which those GPUs are more, you know, are better suited for doing um, the high computational work of 3D and things that are required for getting to Bitcoin. Uh, whereas the A100 is is actually much more built on training and and all of the inference type logic that is slightly different. So that is a different type of GPU chip, but the same same basic concepts, just different pathways. Or there's more of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you could use you know desktop GPUs, but your experience won't go as far. <laughs> I think is what basically the gist of it is. Hmm. I, I didn't realize there was that much of a difference in the the actual chip or the performance. I thought it was just its form factor, right? Like a desktop market. It's hard to operate those at scale. It's hard to get the density you need. I mean, and, this is where Jonathan would be really able to tell you all the because yeah. he's a where, he's a big NVIDIA. Where's the boy. smart British guy? Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, so you know, save that question for next week. Like, hey, yeah. Jonathan, tell me what's different about those because he'll fill you in on it. But uh, I do know there's there's quite a few differences. He's talked to me about it before, but I hmm. was drinking and I do remember blazing over at one point <laughs> in the conversation because <laughs> he goes deep on it. Uh, yeah. Interesting enough, you know, and then talking about capacity. Um, you know, the FinOps Foundation, I'm a member of it. And so I, I hang out on their Slack team and and uh, someone posted in, you know, this, this screenshot uh, of the spot market pricing in US East 1. And, and basically it shows that, you know, over the last few weeks, the prices just continued to climb. Whoa. And they were complaining about, you know, the fact that that, that was happening and, and does anyone know why? And, and my response is sort of like, well, that's how the spot market works. <laughs> but, you know, when you really think about, you know, what's going on, you know, there, there's a couple of likely scenarios of why spot market pricing is increasing. Um, and the, you know, and I, I gave my three reasons. Of course, the ones that I like the best are the cynical ones, but um, <laughs> as the, as people do. But you know, my my big feeling was that uh, you know the first one is you know there's a capacity constraint possibly in the supply chain, uh, so that's you know that's resulting in pressure on AWS, and so they don't have as many boxes combined with new customers or new customer workloads that are coming online, or potentially this AI workload, depending on if they can use some of those boxes. Um, you know, are just using up on-demand capacity, and so that's just pushing the spot market prices up because there's less spot market availability, which is the you know most boring reason why ever. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> the next one was uh, you know I was thinking about you know just Amazon you know heading into earnings and kind of their situation. You know, 
if you are typically running six months of spare capacity up front, and all of a sudden you're trying to save some money, why don't you reduce the amount of inventory you have on hand that you're selling for pennies on the dollar on the spot market? And so potentially this is Amazon saying, look, we're not going to be buying quite as far ahead as we have in the past, uh, maybe to boost margins or some other cost optimization thing, uh, which people people like that one because, uh, you know, again, cynical. And the mm. one that the third one was is Amazon is just artificially increasing the price of the spot market to boost sales <laughs> and top line growth, which is one everyone loved the most because, of course, mm. that's the most cynical those three reasons, but I was curious if you guys had any other thoughts of why spot market pricing in US East might be going up. Um, but those are my three reasonable guesses. I, you know, I, my anecdote to this is um, I used to run spot instances for the cloud pod and stuff in uh, US West 2, which is in Oregon. Uh, and it worked really great until reInvent week. And then all the labs, you say, use US West 2. And guess what? They're all hitting the capacity that I was using on spot market. So all my servers during reInvent would go down. Which was a terrible scenario. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm familiar with these things in the spot market, uh, and this is one of the reasons why preemptibles will make it a little bit better on Google because you get a guaranteed lower price. But as long as you turn it off once a day, you you are in compliance with the preemptible rules, or they'll turn it off for you. Um, but you get more predictability versus spot market, which is truly an auction. I thought you can do things like spot blocks and stuff like that, which like guarantee it for you for certain periods of time, but. Been a little while since I played with all the different spot options on AWS. Well, I mean, you have fleets and stuff to like help mitigate your risk of a single type of thing. There is, uh, you know, they won't just rip it out from underneath you like they used to, which is one of the big, you know, hot button items. So, in the, as the price increases, they give you warning periods now before they turn your stuff off, um, so you can be more gracefully shutting things down. But uh, you know, it's still it's not as volatile as it once was. It is definitely more smoothed out than it used to be. But it is still the spot market you knew and loved from the past. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I mean, I've always, once, you know, past the initial like sort of rollout where it was really volatile and it, it was really smooth for a long time. Where, and I thought I would see much more adjustment for things like Prime Day or Black Friday or, or that. And I really haven't for consumer based stuff. You're right. The labs did seem to have an effect on the market, which I thought was, a, which I always thought was funny. Stuff that I wouldn't expect to have as big an impact as some of those large consumer events, um, and you know, but it's this is, I mean, it's pretty dramatic change for true stream medium. I, I'd be curious to see if there's other, like, if it dimensioned across different instance types, maybe different numbers of CPUs. I was thinking of regions. Well, I mean, maybe it could be regions too, but I was thinking like maybe this is more hardware, or or you know, this is Amazon, you know turning off an entire data center to move a network link or, you know, like, you know, that the, the Amazon scale to have this level of impact, it's, you know, it's going to be pretty big change, I think, for that short period of time. I mean, these are T3s. It's possible, one, that they're trying to, you know, actually get people off this hardware. Maybe they're also, you know, I know a lot of the from reading a lot of the like Prime Day posts and you know Thanksgiving post Thanksgiving Day posts and everything like that, they're internally trying to run more and more on their own chips, on the gravitons. So I also wonder if maybe a lot of the extra capacity they don't need, you know, and this was what they were planning to use, and now they're pushing more people towards the graviton internally. So mm-hmm. now they're more maybe those prices have stabilized, and these they're not like like other people said, not maybe buying as much ahead or. They're just not buying anymore right now, trying to get people onto the T4s and the Gravitons in general and push people into those directions. Yeah, so it's not just the Ts. Um, I did post some more graphs that were shared in the FinOps thing. 
Um, you know, AP Southeast 1A, you know, sees a similar increase over the last few weeks. Uh, you know, European servers is not quite as dramatic because European servers are always kind of more expensive anyways. US East 1A is in here as well. So, yeah, there's definitely, yeah. Um, you know, something, but again... And the Graviton. And Graviton is one of these examples yep. too. It's got the same huge increase, right? The same time frame. Yeah. So again, going back to that, very cynical, like maybe Google, maybe they're just trying to boost profits. Because yeah. <laughs> again, they, they would be ultimately the controller of the market. So, I don't know. It's a... Something to keep an eye on. I'll be definitely keeping an eye on this FinOps thread because uh, it was interesting to me, and no one's really disputed my reasoning. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, I have no idea. I have no inside baseball information. But uh, you know, yeah, just back to capacity and resources. You know, again, and you know, my thought too is like, well, are these boxes somehow usable in AI training models? You know, even if they don't have the GPUs, and I, I don't know. I have no idea. It's not mm-hmm. an area that I specialize in. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on to AWS news in proper. Uh, first up is AWS is announcing support for payload streaming. Response time uh, streaming is a new invocation pattern that lets functions progressively stream response payloads back to clients, and you can do this with your Lambda function. Uh, you can do this as the data becomes available to improve performance for web and mobile apps, and this helps improve your ter- uh, time-to-first-byte performance while the client waits for the response. Streaming responses will cost you more in network transfer costs, of course, if you're a build based on the number of bytes generated and streamed out of your Lambda function after the first initial six megabytes. Initial maximum response size of a response is 20 megabytes, but that is a soft limit. No details of how big the hard limit would be. Uh, and the maximum bandwidth throughput is 16 megabits per second or two megabits a second for streaming functions. Uh, so there you go. That's uh, your new Lambda response streaming, which makes a lot of sense to me, considering you know CDN performance, and now that Lambda can be a backend to CloudFront, um, I might want to be able to deliver things faster to CloudFront, and then that would require TTFB to be much faster. Yeah, no, that's that is pretty cool, actually. Like now, reading through a little bit more detail, time to first byte and that sort of performance is. It's, I've worked on projects in the past where that's, you know, super critical for that, that user experience, you know, whether it's streaming files or, you know, videos or, or, uh, documents. So that's, that is pretty cool actually, because that does open up Lambda for a lot more workloads than that, you know, have been traditionally stuck on big servers with big beefy network connections. Um, and also, you know, a little bit into containers, but less so. So uh, it's pretty neat, actually. This might be an area where, you know, serverless might get a little bit of an advantage over a Docker container because some of these streaming things are really still really hard to do through like a Docker network bridge and you know things. That- well, I mean, right now it, it does only support I think Node.js, mm. <laughs> so uh, yeah. you know it needs to come right. to Java and Python and .NET and a couple other things to be really functional for a lot of people. But yeah, it's good first place to start. And I think, you know, especially in web front-end technology, Node is probably one of the leading leaders in the space. So, Yeah, I'm really curious what people start to do with this. You know, I think that the concepts are really cool, getting the, you know, being able to stream everything, the faster, you know, first response, you know, and getting all that. So I'm kind of curious how people take this and leverage it into their applications. And it's like you said, they move off of servers and they just go more towards the servers play or, how do they actually leverage this? Um, some of the stuff feels a little limiting, but maybe I'm just not fully in that world of, you know, how much, like six megs. Okay, that doesn't, you know, it feels like a good amount, but is that going to be enough for a lot of people? 
you know, in the soft limit of 20 megabytes that you mentioned. So kind of just trying to, I'm kind of curious to see how people kind of build this out over time into what things. Yeah. I mean, there are some other limitations you need to think about too, because the API gateway, for example, doesn't support anything beyond 10 megabit limit. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you're, if you're doing that streaming through the API gateway, you know, you're limited by other things. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. But, you know, again, a lot of times when these new things come out from AWS, we're talking about, you know, they're always kind of gated in weird ways to help them figure out scale and how, what adoption looks like. So then they can figure out their future investments. But I, you know, this is a good optimization for web apps and for mobile in particular. I expect to see this continue to be something that Lambda continues to try to eat edge cases or use cases that don't make sense for serverless. Um, you know, they did stateful, you know, they've done now container layers, you know, they've done all kinds of things to make the, you know, the cold start they finally fixed. <laughs> so there's lots of things they've done to make this better. Um, you know, so I could see this continuing to be an area they continue to invest heavily because if, you know, again, the pricing on Lambda versus a container or a server is just so much cheaper. It's hard to argue against. Especially in this world that everyone wants everything as a Kafka event. <laughs> Did they fix cold starts for Java workloads, right? They, they haven't really expanded that? Right? I have not seen it get expanded beyond Java yeah. yet. And I would assume they would be publishing that <laughs> more heavily if they had done it beyond yeah. Java. But you know, Java, again, is one of the most predominant apps out there. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, for those of you Proton users, uh, they're now announcing an integration with Git for a service sync for AWS Proton. Uh, the service sync is a new feature that allows developers to configure and deploy their Proton services using Git. This feature, developers can sync their AWS Proton service with a configuration defined in a Git repository, allowing them to use Git features like version control and pull requests to configure, manage, review, and deploy their service. The service sync allows you to use a self-service interface, keep it updated, oversee it centrally, and it can stay with your continued uh, processes of Git. Uh, this is actually pretty interesting. You know, I was looking through the examples, you know, your Proton.ops YAPL file, you know, specifying your testing, your staging, your production branches, your front-end services, and you can dive in and you know basically set up this in the spec file. And so, you know, for uh, an alternative to Beanstalk, I really like the idea of this. I wish I was doing more with Proton. Like this definitely made me kind of think, like, hmm, I want to play with this. And so I might I might spend a couple of sample projects to go play with it and see what I can do. But um, I like you know for a really simple CI/CD pipeline, like this could be a good introduction for some dev teams. Yeah, it really feels like it was a really good starting point. I was a little weirdly surprised that I didn't realize they didn't have that to start off. Same. Um, <laughs> so, like when they announced it, I kind of did a double take. I was like, "But how did you do it before?" So I'm like, kind of spent a little bit more time weirdly on how they did it before than now, which feels like it was a little bit more click ops. But it's great to see that they're pushing everything more into the GitOps model. Yeah, so before it would create a, a template in, in Terraform or CloudFormation. And so you would get this output file that you'd have to go manage and process um, through you know, CloudFormation or through Terraform. So this is, this is nice because it now kind of takes that step out of, the, out of the equation. So you don't have to do that extra work. And Amazon scans, you know, Proton automatically scans your Git repository that it's public, you know, available to it. And then we'll tell it, hey, you know, something's changed and then t- you know, process those changes for you. So that's the difference here versus the way it used to work. Uh, and so we come to our final article for Amazon. You can now put an Amazon Elastic cache in front of RDS and Aurora databases directly from the AWS management console. Adding a cache to database is a common way to accelerate application performance in certain cases and help reduce your costs. Uh, this was a possibility before, but of course you had to do your own plumbing and configuration and configure security groups. 
Uh, and so, you know, I was curious about this because I use a lot of RDS databases in my my websites and my friends' websites that I help support. And uh, we do use caching. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of annoying about caching is that you kind of pay data transfer costs if it's going across zones in AZ to your database backend to cache the data. So I was curious if this was going to be a savings opportunity where, oh, is Amazon going to handle the logistics of the security group and connecting the ElastiCache to the uh, you know, to the RDS database and some of those things, which, uh, so I went to go try to play with this and, uh, I have RDS servers in Oregon and I have RDS servers in Ohio and neither one of them had this option. <laughs> so I have no idea. And I tried to do it and give you feedback and I could not. Uh, but it, you know, in further reading of the documentation, I don't think it saves you. It does look like it connects to your existing security groups and existing infrastructure, which is kind of a bummer. Cause if that had been a nice little kind of reverse sale, uh, savings to do it this way, that like, you know, why wouldn't you want Amazon to manage this for you? Yeah, the amount of times they've had to have conversations of, hey, have you, you know, hey, are, 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 we're killing our RDS. I was like, do you have a cache? And they had to walk everyone through how to set this up and do all the plumbing and everything like that. It's nice that hopefully if it is what I understand it is, it's all just kind of integrated in and it's one set of deployment versus go launch this, set up all the pieces and everything, which sounds like, they're about 50% of the way there, so at least it's a starting point. Yeah. I mean, it'd be really nice if it just you know, something you just check a box on the RDS and say, give me a cache front end, and then all the URLs that you would normally use would just move to the cache front end, and then they would handle everything else in the back end. That's what I was hoping for, and then I was hoping they'd give me a cost break on that <laughs> as well, but they did not. So, foiled again. This is just a button. Yeah, but, it does, <laughs> but that's what I think it is, but where's the button? I can't even find the button. That's my problem. So creating an Amazon Elastic Cluster using Amazon RDS DB instance settings. So yeah. it's it's just using the RDS API or the console really to create an Elastic Search or Elastic Cache Cluster, just like you would with CloudFormation mm-hmm. or Terraform mm-hmm. or or via a, a separate console. Like there's not anything. But would you rather tell your developer go click that button and you have a cache, or here how to now go write a thousand lines of code and come formation? Like I'd rather give them the button in some cases. <laughs> no, well, I, the uh, my point being is is not really the creation of the cluster. All the plumbing still has to be done. Yeah. Well, no, they do, like, they do do the connection to the existing security groups for you per the article. So like when you create the last cache, it adds the last cache source uh, and destination information into the security groups for the RDS when you do it this way. But like it's it's the most basic, low level integration they could have possibly done to make this work. I'm curious why they spent the time to do this and do it up to this point. Like, what customer was like, "I want to be able to press the button and get this, but not get the rest of it," or is that just coming in the future? Well, and it's just it's yeah, it's a console enablement of the existing service. It's just putting a button for one service and in the other service. Like, I don't perhaps. The, yeah, no, the problem is, is that we got our expectations up for what this was, which is magically cache my database, it, damn it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, pro- I the promise of this headline is amazing, <laughs> and the detail invitation is not. That's the problem. Yeah. I wanted DAX for DynamoDB, where you know it's you give it the URL, you connect the thing on the back end, and it knows where it is. That's what I wanted here. Yeah, yeah. And I, cl- that's what I clicked I this button, it was. and my cost goes down, and my performance goes up. I love this. Yeah, that's yeah, what I wanted. That's what I wanted. That's not what too. this is. Yeah, sadly, it's not. But I, I, I'm, I'm mostly annoyed that I can't even. I can't. Even, I couldn't even figure that out because I can't even figure out how to access the goddamn feature because it's not in. It's not in any of my database setting configs. And I went through every expansion of that menu and art in the console trying to find it, and I could not find it. 
I, so like, it's got to be a hidden button somewhere or like it's only available in USC's one, but they don't actually mention that. I mean, it article. is pretty hidden. So in the databases page, select the required DB instance. Yep. Did so that. that's one, one layer in the actions drop down menu, choose create Elasticash cluster. So it's, it's pretty deep. Uh, I okay. I'm going. I'm going. I, we're doing this live. We're doing it live. Doing this live. Yeah. And right, I'm should. digging this out of deep in the RDS user guide. I am in the database yeah. and I go to actions. And oh, okay. Oh, okay. So I so my my mistake was I went to DB instances and I click on it there, and then you had to go to actions there. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't expect it to be at the required. You know, like it. it, it if Where you've you got just, multiple instances in a DB cluster, like yeah, this seems yeah. a little strange, but yeah. Right. And then yeah, yeah, no, it literally just gives you. Uh, it's basically just a movement of the Elasticash uh, wizard mm-hmm. uh, to the RDS console. That's yep, that's, that's lovely. It. That's um, it does have its connectivity. It does. I mean, it does have the security groups filled out, but that yeah, other than that, it doesn't do much. Mm-hmm. So. Boo! We want more. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code, and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOp solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentsnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul. And they bring their own juice. All right, GCP this week has uh, really no press releases, but they did update their lovely "What's New" blog post. I'm going to reach out to them. Like, so if someone who listens to our show knows somebody in marketing at Google, uh, can we get press briefings, <laughs> like, or just emails, so we don't have to go hunt for this data? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found three things I thought we could talk about here. So first up is a. Uh, Google Cloud Deploy now supports Canary releases as a deployment strategy uh, in preview. So you can uh, try out your deployments. It'll roll it back if you uh, have problems uh, for Google's Kubernetes, uh, Cloud Run, and Anthos workloads uh, and is automated for all of your use cases. So you can use the automated version. You can use the custom automated if you have certain phasing or percentage goals you want to use. Or you can write a custom Canary, uh, which allow you to do all kinds of things separately. Uh, once you have the Canary deployment finished, it'll go stable, and then your deployment is done. Or if it fails that, it'll roll back. So, beautiful. Yeah, this is definitely, this ability in for your app is amazing, right? Depending on, you know, your app and structure. But I love anything directly user-exposed, right? Canary is the best way to get feedback without, you know, massive outages or creating a hell week for your ops teams after a release. Um, and I was even reading an article about Netflix doing QA basically um, just like just by massively getting into their uh, uh, ops stack and just looking for errors after Canary deployment. So they're effectively using their end users as QA testers. I love that. I always love to be a guinea um, pig. And, you know, like that's, and I don't know if I recommend that exactly, but uh, I, 
just the idea of being able to do a limited rollout and very quickly react and roll back is pretty fantastic. I'm just going to be on my train today of I'm shocked they didn't have this. I know that, you know, so many other services, those are kind of things that are built in, you know, earlier on. I think I've done code deploy, I feel like three, four years ago on AWS using Canary deployments. I know I've done it 2021. I was advising a company, uh, you know, for their container deployment using code deploy. So just the fact that it's getting released now makes me wonder how many people have built solutions in GCP in order to do something you know that feels weirdly rudimentary, but I understand it's a fairly complicated thing to do. It's hard to get all the plumbing right, right? Yeah. So you get, you're looking at a lot of different sources of information. The 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 actual oh, yeah. deployed application on its many many services, and then logging and and other observability signals. But I mean, it, it is something that you know. I, I was just know. spoiled. What can I say? I know. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> that I think it is one. I think that's a great call out, right? Like Google is last to the market. They need to have some of these features faster, right? Because they're not trailblazing. Yeah, but I, I so. do remember AWS not having some of those things. I remember when Beanstalk first got Canary deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. You know, that was forever ago. But you know, it it happened. It, it didn't exist mm-hmm. for a while, and they. Given you better and better tooling in this space. I mean, I'd say Amazon's probably on like version three of these type of rolling deployment toolings at this point. Um, but you know, I expect a lot more for a third mover in the cloud. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in the, this is one of those areas where they could do better. Yeah. Uh, speaking of other areas, they could do better. <laughs> uh, they're excited to announce the general availability of cloud-run services as backends to internal HTTPS load balancers as well as uh, general availability of cloud-run services as backends to regional external HTTPS load balancers. Uh, these capabilities allow you to establish private activity between cloud-run services and other services and clients on Google Cloud, on-prem, or on other clouds. Using an internal load balancer with cloud-run provides benefits that include using custom domain names, mitigating traffic from legacy services, and guarding access based on identity and context, and configuring a single internal Layer 7 load balancer for multiple services. So I don't actually feel like this is all that late, given how long Cloud Run's been around. Like, basically having your load balancer be able to map to ephemeral targets on the back end is, you know. I mean, Amazon released that with ECS. Was like one of the very first things they did was, enable, was integrate the CLB with the ECS control plane. But this isn't ECS. I, this I is, realize. This would be, this would be uh, you know, how long have they had Lambda as, a, as an endpoint for... A load balancer. I mean, a few years now. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it didn't exist day one either. Yeah, I no, was... it didn't exist day one, and you know, but it is, and it is a you know a bigger challenge. And there are you know, like the networking at Google versus Amazon is also, I think, a lot more complex under the hood. I assume. Yeah, I think they, I think it's way more complex, but hidden behind simple GUIs <laughs> yeah. and simple yeah. APIs. But yeah, super complex in Google. Yeah, and then you know, like the you know the fact that you know it's supporting both the regional load balancers as well as you know the all the load balancers, because that's also like a extra a extra little caveat, and because there's different application flows and different like, stuff like that. But you know, identity aware proxy, you know that I think they've had that. They came out with that pretty quick. Yeah, they they're definitely leader in that space. So I don't know why I'm defending Google all of a sudden. Like, hey, you leave them alone, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's see how it is. <laughs> I won't say they got it. <laughs> 
No, I think that the internal load balancer, I feel like is always one of the harder things, you know, because a lot of times they just use whatever their external tools are. Um, and the internal load balancer, I feel like is really what trips up a lot of um, the cloud providers and always is a later feature. So it's nice to see that they're actually just doing it all at once and, you know, killing all the birds with one stone, um, you know, and just kind of knocking them all out. Um, I do think that in general, internal load balancers are something that a lot of companies do overlook um, of just making things be in- more internal facing. I feel like that's something that a lot of people are like, oh, we'll just put everything you know public. And the concept of internal load balancers really baffles a lot of the dev teams that I've talked to over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so frustrating if you're developing an internal tool. And if you exposed your endpoint publicly, you'd be able to use a technology like serverless functions behind your yeah. load balancer, but you can't do that because of policy or, and you don't really want it out there. And you're like, oh no, cool. I'll just orchestrate an entirely new mechanism for this. Thank you. What do you mean you can't just make it a DNS entry? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've been there and done that, had that argument. Uh, and the last Google announcement for this week, uh, there's a vi- new visual tool for compute engine fleets uh, in the observability tab in the compute engine. The console VM list page has a reached general availability. The new observability tab is an easy way to monitor and troubleshoot the health of your fleet of VMs. And if I had a news post, I could have a screenshot of this, but I don't. So uh, I'm sure I could go look at it in more depth. But uh, yeah, you know, it, uh, it shows you your fleet and the CPU and memory of it. Wow. Cool. <laughs> are Graphs are nice. <laughs> Graphs are good. Graphs are pretty. I mean, I assume this just looks like a whole bunch of boxes that are with like yeah. CPU numbers, and it's just called, you know, my pet one, my pet two. Yeah, I found a, a link and dropped in. It, it is a little bit nice because it aggregates kind of everything together into one screenshot, into yeah. one like quick page that you can look at, but. It's nothing revolutionary. Do I not understand what a compute engine fleet is? It, something CloudWatch had five, you know, fifteen years ago. CloudWatch, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is really this is the feature. This uh, is just aggregating all my metrics of my VMs in a project. Yeah, cool. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get complaints from our Google reps. Like you're really yeah, you're really you're really harsh this week on the pod. Sorry. <laughs> well, to be fair, they didn't do a, pub, a press release, so we had to go find our own news. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. See, if I had a press release that I could have, you know, I could have had, I would, I'd be less salty about Google this week. So, I thought you were just gonna blame me. No, no, uh, the, the but, person that doesn't use GCP. No, no. Exactly. I mean, we can, we can blame you for the next section of news, which is all Azure news. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. I know. That's why I'm here. You'll get your turn. Yeah. yeah. I think it's it for Google. So we'll talk about it now. Uh, <laughs> Microsoft is excited to continue sucking up all the oxygen on AI with the new Microsoft Azure Connected <laughs> Learning Experience or CLX program which has three data and AI tracks designed for data professionals. CLX, for those curious, is a four-step learning program that assesses your current knowledge, zero, provides study materials, not going to read, a virtual cram session, yes, I will do that, and a practice test, which I will fail before you go get certified. So all available to you now if you're interested in learning all about AI and how you can become a new amazing uh, unicorn employee who has all these certifications that get paid a lot more money, just like data scientists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zing! Trying to keep a straight face here. Um, uh-huh. I think it's nice that they're actually trying to like educate the market, which is nice on these tools. You know, it's just really their certification exams that they're kind of pushing here. 
Yeah, I mean, it's an AI track and their learning yeah. thing. It's a it's a great revenue builder. And of course, if you're a customer and you're interested in AI, you're like, I want training on AI. You know, like it makes perfect sense. So I, good on Azure for doing this. I'm still going to laugh at it because it's funny. I uh, I love the descriptions of some of the courses. The new AI 102, uh, Designing and Implementing a Microsoft Azure AI Solution, uh, the course content is the course boosts your understanding of building, managing, and deploying AI solutions that leverage Azure cognitive services and Azure applied AI services designed for learners who are experienced in all phases of AI solutions development. If I knew what I was doing, I wouldn't be taking a 102 class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is that, that uh, intern that you have that wants to get into it. You just kind of give them that and let them kind of go read and watch and say so they can put on their resume for their next job. Here you go. I'm an Azure certified AI solution engineer. All right. Moving on to Azure in space. Azure space has been committed since launch to enable people to achieve more both on and off the planet. And today they continue their journey to go where no one has gone before with several new features. Viasat RTE integration with Azure Orbital Ground Station. Uh, a partnership with Ball Aerospace and Law Federal on Space Development Agency's National Defense Space Architecture Experimental Testbed. Whew, God, the government. Come on, shorter names. Advancements <laughs> on the hybrid space architecture for the Defense Innovation Unit, U.S. Space Force and Air Force Research Lab. And Azure Power Space Information Sharing and Analysts Center, or ISAC, delivers space, cybersecurity, and threat intelligence operating capabilities. And we have a quote here from John Williams, not the composer, but the vice president of Viasat Real-Time Earth. <laughs> Viasat Real-Time Earth is enabling remote sensing satellite operators who are pushing the envelope of high-rate downlinks. Our strong partnership with Azure Orbital enables those same customers through increased access to our ground services over the Azure Orbital Marketplace and a dependable high-speed terrestrial network to reduce the time it takes to downlink and deliver massive amounts of data. Yeah, with all the you know microsatellites and everything, there are a lot of these cloud vendors, you know, people don't didn't know how to actually communicate with them. So having these you know, ground stations that are now a lot cheaper and easier to use kind of starts to really enable the, you know, the smaller companies that are just launching, you know, one or two of the, you know, smaller satellites. Uh, there's a specific term for them that I don't remember, um, you know, to actually kind of get into the world where before it was just, you know, you had to be one of these massive companies that, you know, runs the geosynchronous satellites. So, you know, really with all these cloud fires, AWS kind of getting into it. Um, I honestly don't know if Google has a space I haven't program. Seen anything. You know, no. but and Azure obviously has been with SpaceX for a while. You know, really does start to enable a lot more options for people um, and give them tools that they never had before. Oh, yeah. I, you mentioned Google, so I just Googled it. Uh, they are doing partnerships with um, a company called Leaf Space which their software runs on top of Google Cloud and it has the ground station as a service capability. So in the classic Google model of all things cloud, they are partnering, not competing. I feel like Microsoft does that a lot too. No, not as much as Google. Google, <laughs> Google does way more than... I mean, because Microsoft will, will partner but still give you a native offering that's terrible. So you get both. <laughs> you get a partner solution and you get a terrible solution. Uh, in the Google world, there's just the partner solution. So you want to run a, a NoSQL database? Mongo Atlas for, is your friend. Mm, got it. Well, it's, but single bill. So yeah, know. all under single bill, though. And in a single console, because it does embed into the console directly, which is kind of nice. But versus, you know, that's one of the big problems with like Spot.io. 
mm-hmm. on AWS is that it's a whole different experience. <laughs> so uh, at least in Google, you don't have that problem. And I assume Azure might have something like that, but you have to figure out how to use Azure's console, which is terribly <laughs> organized. So I don't, I don't really After know. After six months, I'm getting not good. Decent is the best word I got for it. <laughs> Every time I go in there, I'm like, I want to find this thing. If I was on crack, where would I put it? And once I can answer that question, I know where to find it. So I'm going to take an AI class so I can build an AI app that can just, in plain language, direct me to where I need to go in the Azure console. That's, that's my new startup idea. I will say the search feature in Azure on the console that will search all your resources directly is kind of nice. Versus AWS, you kind of have to like go to each thing and then find it. Yeah. So the global search it's saves me from nice. having to actually yeah. find anything or know yeah. where things are. I could just be like, oh, I know what our naming convention for this type of thing is. Cool, that gets me 85% of the way there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is very helpful. And same thing across GCP projects as well. Yeah. You can do that. It's, at Amazon, they've given you the tools to sort of build it yourself, right? You could you could index all your resources and, and schedule that to refresh and and then publish that. And so like if you're a cloud platform provider, you can get there, you know, but it's still a little funky. Yeah, no, the cross subscription search and everything has kind of saved my life, though. There's a nice option to filter by subscription. And then I spend a lot of time trying to find why I can't find stuff. And the answer is I've always locked it to one subscription that isn't the one I'm looking for stuff in. It's a really common problem I have in my life. Uh, well, I mean, you had the same problem in AWS world, right? Like, oh, I'm in the wrong account. Yeah. yeah. This is the wrong tab. A yeah. button click. Yeah, a yeah. button versus I had to log out and log back in and redo my two-factor th- two off. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, in uncertain economic times, you need a more flexible option to achieve your business outcomes. And to meet that need, Microsoft is excited to announce new plans for Azure App Service customers with two new offerings in the premium V3 tier <sighs> and expansion and isolated V2 tier that powers the highly security App Service Environment 3. The cost-effective P0V3 plan, this, I mean, come on, oh, come up with their name. <laughs> and a new series of memory-optimized P-Star MV3 plans are designed to help more customers thrive and grow with Azure Platform as a Service. And to give you some ideas what these services savings could be, the Azure App Service monthly cost of the premium V2 with two cores, 7 gigs of memory, was $147 per month. And now with the new P1V3, 2V CPU, and 8 gigs of memory, so you even got a bonus of gigabyte of memory, will only be $113 per month on demand. Uh, which is 23% less for those playing at home. And a one-year savings plan will cost you $85 or 43% less. Uh, there's also several new options for larger instances in your Azure app uh, service that go from 16 or 64 vCPU and 64 gigs or 256 gigs of memory, which apparently is a very large increase over what was available to you previously. So uh, I turn over to Matt Cohn, who can now explain what all those letters meant, because I don't know what they mean. But uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So this, all I know is that yeah, they can't define a, a name for a plan to save their lives. And Azure. I mean, that's, that's probably my biggest pet peeve of Azure. I mean, other than it's Azure and the console. Okay, so I have well, I have a lot of pet peeves. Yeah. Sorry, let me do that. <laughs> One of many of my pet peeves um, is the naming of instances in in, in Azure because they make no sense to me yeah. at all, and they're they're just like they spit out they, like. Their cat walked across the keyboard and then put a number on it, and they're like, "Yeah, that's a perfect instance name for that that family of Xeon processors." I'm like, "How would you know that?" Yeah, I was trying to find different uh, types. So, and I know AWS is offhand. M, you know, mixed, you know, 
R is for RAM, you know, C is for compute. I was trying to find something along those lines. And apparently F today I learned is for their compute series. I haven't quite figured out why. Um, but that was, you know, my 4.30 to 5 o'clock time frame. And then I just said, it's 5 o'clock, I'm done. I have a couple ideas, but it would get us tacked with an explicit filter. So I'm gonna... <laughs> So app service plans, I spent a little bit of time this week actually trying to understand them. So if we had this conversation next week, I would have been a little <laughs> bit better prepared to at least give a little bit more insight. But it's not you know, how we roll. No, it never is. <laughs> um, you know, so... There's a lot of differences between them. And for most businesses, from what I can tell, you're going to want to be in the higher end, which is really what they've kind of done here, which is the P the P or the I, the premium or the isolated. Um, the isolated V2 tier enables you to actually have multiple zone support. So when Azure does updates on the back end, you actually don't go down. Um, you know, versus the, you oh. know, and the premium tier, I think, had that built in. Um, I don't know what version it is. I'm still trying to understand that in some of the letter schemas. Um, I don't know what P0 is. I haven't ever seen that before, but that doesn't really mean much. Um, between the different tiers also comes up a lot of different um, options, like like the different skills or different features. Um, for what I look at for you know my day job is a lot more of the I and the P, um, just because I need some of those higher features like multi-zonal support or scaling um, or really VNet supports another big one. Um, private endpoints too is another big one, but the complete integration. From what I understand, and I'm not sure I'm correct yet, I'll know more next week. So feel free to, by the time this posts, I should know a little bit more. Um, you know, the, the last thing that the piece that they really upgraded is a lot around the security of it too. So the upgraded P3 plan you know, enables a lot more of the other options. I think it might let you run containers or you could run containers if you did it. I'm not sure. Um, no, it does. It says, includes here the general availability of Windows container support, which I would highly recommend not doing Windows containers, but that's just my personal preference in life, <laughs> um, as I've had some experience with that in the past. So a lot of it just comes down to it's a new tier. It lets them scale a little bit more. It gives them a little bit more options. And they baked in a lot more security. There was an article in preparation for this. Um, and until my computer crashed and I can't find the Chrome tab that had it in before, um, I can, I'll can i find it and give it to Justin for the show notes, but it has kind of the differences between some of the stuff. And I believe if I remember from memory, it's around some of the security between the new versions. And so that's kind of what a lot of this comes down to, I believe. But with the big caveat there of I believe. If you're not okay, just blink twice. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think I followed all of that. I think I got the gist, but there was a lot there to unpack. And, you know, the premium, ultra premium tiers is always a, a great, you know, wrinkle to this. Mix. You can't do anything less than ultra premium is what I've learned. Everything yeah. has to be the highest end because that's the only way they nicely give you the security stuff that you need um, to make it past your, all your compliance and everything is really only in the premium. Well, I, so, I, I, my argument on that whole ultra thing and the premium thing is that 
Um, I don't want to be the guy who, you know, gets called in front of the CEO after a major outage and he's like, well, why didn't we have better things? And like, well, because we didn't pony up for the ultra premium plan and then like mm-hmm. then get fired on the spot. Like that, that's yeah. not, I don't want to go through that process because how do you not, you know, if you're in technology and your job is service and availability, how do you not justify the ultra premium offering? Like it's just, it's like, it's not a good conversation. Like, no, it's, it's not because it, it was cheaper and it was hit the budget and that, that didn't, you know, like, no, it should have been ultra premium because we're, we're a serious business. Like it's just a, it's a terrible naming convention that causes all kinds of problems. I think that's the, the main problem I, you know, I have with a lot of these things. It's just that, you know, they don't sell it like it's a, the licensed version of a thing with this feature capability, right? It's the service with all this capability with like little subtext or a sub note of if you pay for this one, you know, like if you pick the right combination of letters, then you get the services that they're advertising on the front end. So it always just feels like I gotcha. And I don't, you know, I just, I, it, they're in reality, it's a freedom of choice. I get to pick, you know, whether or not that, you know, high availability is my concern and whether that value is worth it to me. And so like, I think I would like this in practice, but the, the way that it's marketed since I don't use it every day, like every time I read one of these, I'm like, why would you do that to your users? <laughs> the other problem is so many of the things are only available once you hit the high end. Yeah. So we were talking today internally about you know front door. And between front door, basic, standard, whatever the you know general one is, is like $35 or something like that. And the premium is like $350. I think it was somewhere around 10x the cost. And the feature we wanted was to not have, we were just going to do a uh, static HTML website. Oh, sorry. No, we were doing um, essentially SaaS token URLs. So think pre-signed URLs in AWS um, through a CDN. And you know to store the objects on the blob storage behind the scenes and in a storage account. And we're going to end up on the premium tier just because we want to make the from the front door to the storage account be private link. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, I have to go to the premium tier versus the standard tier. And there's no other way to lock down. Otherwise, that underlying blob storage has to be public facing. And like that to me is charging for security, which is something I don't yeah. like. Which is it's bad enterprise model. Yeah. Yep. Yep, but that's agreed. what most of the things are in order to get the, the security things. I have to be on the high end. Yep. Yeah. You know, I, I've talked about it many times on the show in the past that charging for things like single sign on or high availability is super annoying. <laughs> uh, and security features, you know, some of them make sense that there'd be upcharges and then others yeah. just be included. And, you know, they're seeming arbitrary and just a way to make you forced into a higher package that costs more money, which is what makes it feel dirty. SSO was it SSO.tax? It's a fun yep. website. All right, we're gonna talk about Oracle now. And we're going to the realm of Oracle today. Do 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 <laughs> which is good timing. I mean, was the D D movie out now? Like this is great timing for this. <laughs> Um, so Oracle Sovereign Cloud uh, solutions are now making realms available to enhance your cloud isolation. A realm is a logical collection of cloud regions that are isolated from each other and do not allow customer content to traverse realm boundaries to a region outside that realm. Realms help with data sovereignty requirements, and the Oracle's EU Sovereign Cloud will launch in 2023, and the realm will initially comprise of two cloud regions, Germany and Spain. 
And uh, basically, if you want to know what that is, it's how to keep your data in one area. So I, you know, I appreciate that Oracle's telling me that my data will traverse realms or regions without my authorization, and that I would need such a service. So thank you for that, Oracle. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, your marketing kind of failed you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please tell me this is like an easy way to like attest you're you're following like a GDPR policy versus like. Oh hey, uh, if you want to opt out of this terrible thing that we're doing on the back end, here's a button. You know, <laughs> and I'm not sure which. I wonder if it's competing with. I guess competing isn't the right term. You know, mirroring um, Azure's like they have like you can deploy load balancers and scale sets in multiple regions, and they're the mm-hmm. ones tied in the same countries a lot of times or in the same you know compliance regulation. So like the two in Canada, the the to in Germany and they kind of tear them together. So I wonder if this is supposed to be that same concept just with a weird name. Yeah, we'll never know because uh, the, the chances of me running a workload on OCI are so slim um, that I'll never get to play with this myself. And uh, that article is not very clear. So <laughs> <laughs> like, is this a regional load balancer endpoint? Like in GCP? No, I don't know. Maybe it's a realm. I, I can't read it because somehow my computer has decided that <laughs> Oracle's website is not allowed on my computer, so I can't I can't get to it. But it's I, a security I, risk. It's blocked there. I mean, I yeah, it's possible. I, I, you know, <laughs> these things uh, are always you know fun problems. All right. Well, I think that is it for this week. Uh, we are a little over time because we had a great conversation earlier that uh, I think we're going to skip the cloud journey this week again. Sorry again. All your complaints to Ryron one on Twitter. Uh, we'll come back to that next week uh, when we have a little <laughs> less news. But uh, I think we have some good conversations. So we are going to wrap it up here at the mercy of our editor uh, so he doesn't have to go through too much content. <laughs> so we appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Uh, we'll see you next week here on the Cloud Pod. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the Cloud Pod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.